0: Think about a garage and think about yourself being a hoarder. That's what like taking bioidentical hormones are like for anybody with some of these epigenetic hiccups I talked about. Your garage is filled up so much that there's no more room for thyroid or insulin or pituitary, like nothing else gets in there or even other hormones. So that's why you'll often see women feel good for a while on exogenous hormones until that garage gets so full they have to take more or change it around a bit. It's like just rearranging the garbage.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Couch Talk, intimate place for intimate conversation, shamelessly and guiltlessly. And you know, we talk about hard subjects here. This week, we're talking about cancer, you know, something we never want to deal with ourselves, certainly, do we? And we- have suffered through knowing many people with cancer in our lives certainly by now and the results are devastating for the individual with the diagnosis as well as those who love them and the fallout from them you know where Big on it takes an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And never just look at cancer as a diagnosis, look at it as, as a as a signal, as a notice that we've got to figure out what the underlying cause is. That's critical because often, and I've treated so many patients that, you know, their cancer was excised or treated or chemoed or or, uh, radiated, right? But the cause of their cancer, and it's not just because we have breast, we get breast cancer, right? The cause of the cancer was never addressed. And what were things that could have been done decades earlier to help improve the immune system, help improve the hormonal neuroendocrine system to help improve the inflammatory system. So all of these things, we're going we're to touch on some of these things today with my guest, who is Dr. Naysha Winters, and she's a naturopathic physician and a sought-after luminary and global health authority and integrative cancer research. She's speaking with me at Dr. Bronique's Breast Health and Breast Cancer event that is going on as a retreat in Atlanta and just bringing information to physicians and to clients around the world and bridging these ancient therapies with advancements in modern medicine. Like we do not discriminate. We are like-minded in this, right? Healing modalities. We do not discriminate on healing modalities. If they work, we want to talk about it, right? that's really a fabulous, she's a fabulous guest to have on as well. She has her own personal journey with cancer and a medical career spanning over 25 years. She is on a mission to educate and empower the nearly 50% of the population expected to have cancer in their lifetime. So prevention is the only cure. Dr. Naysha is a best-selling co-author of The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, which has received many accolades and I can highly recommend it. So Naysha, it is great to have you here with me today. Thanks for thanks for joining me.
0: Thank you. I'm a little fangirled out. I'm really excited to be here with you, and um, it's wonderful to be part of your tribe and um, share share our conversation with everyone.
1: Yeah, yeah, I'm excited, and you know, just we're we're chatting ahead of time, and and, and soul sisters, we are soul sisters. <laughs> I'm thrilled to bring your message your message to my community. It's again it's a hard topic to talk about. And I'd like you to start, start with, um, if you don't mind to share your personal story, because that just blew me away. Nisha It really did.
0: Well, you know, I think it's very interesting that I'm sitting here talking with sort of the hormone guru in all of this, because so much of my health issues began very, very young around my hormonal Milieu really came into this world not responding well to any, you know, no one was breastfeeding in 1971, mind you. It was like not the thing to do in Kansas at that time or in a lot of places. So I had a lot of issues with digestion from the get go, and they settled on soy formula for me. So you can imagine, just in your knowledge, that that really caused me problems. In fact, I started menstruating at age nine. Oh, wow. And so back in the early 80s, we didn't see that. We unfortunately see far too much of that today, but we weren't seeing this back then. So it was kind of like red, big red flag number one. By the time I was 11, they put me on birth control pills for severe endometriosis. And back again in the 80s, we're talking mega doses of estrogen, right? The amount in the birth control pills back in that time compared to today was just, you can't even compare apples to orange.
1: Yeah. Like three times as much, right? At least.
0: Easily, easily.
1: And so by the time I was 14 i had
0: been diagnosed with endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, massive acne, you know, all over my face, my my back, my shoulders which should have been clues as well, massive digestive issues, maybe TMI, but my doctors told my mother that it was normal because it was my normal that i only had a bowel movement once a month. <laughs> What right? What well, like I, I can look back and go, duh, you know. So no wonder I had uh, cervical cancer at 14 and again at 16. But they were just you know easy. Let's just go in and freeze dry it and scrape it off. We're good to go. And then by the time I was 19, I was in the ER pretty much monthly around my cycle. It was so excruciating and painful, but everybody wrote it off as my ongoing PCOS or my ongoing endometrial, you know, endometriosis patterns. And by the time I ended up in the ER, tachycardic, end-stage organ failure, eight months of uh, metastatic ascites on board of my abdomen looking like I was ready to have a baby any second with little tiny skinny arms and legs and capturing every little gulp of breath I could because I had no oxygenation in my blood they realized oh gosh we've been ignoring this we've been misdiagnosing misrepresenting who this young woman is really labeling me as histrionic etc that's time they figured it out I was so far gone that they couldn't even recommend standard of care do that chemo would outright told me at best I was looking at a few months and recommended palliative care and here we are going on 28 years this coming October so
1: that was a- ovarian cancer diagnosis you had stage 4 ovarian cancer with metastasis
0: liver peritoneal cavity pneumatosis huge huge grapefruit on my right ovary a complete cachexia so metabolic wasting um complete ascites fluid filled, fluid filled up in my abdomen and it was malignant fluid not just inflammatory fluid and so i and my kidney liver completely in in disrepair and my heart almost stopped that's what actually landed me in the er and actually landed me in the hands of someone who decided to look a little deeper than just sort of, oh, check off the list, maybe PID, maybe ectopic pregnancy, crazy lady, right? And so those were the things that they were facing me with And So part of it I have, you know, you as a doctor recognize this. I have compassion to understand that in 1991, I was that zebra we talk about in medicine. We're not expecting a 19, almost 20 year old to have a terminal diagnosis of ovarian cancer. Just like it was weird to see a nine year old menstruating at that time. But I'm here to tell you in the last six months, I've seen five women, girls under the age of 10 with ovarian cancer.
1: No, Naysha, tell me that's not true. I mean, I'm a gynecologist, right? I I studied at Emory University. We had the zebras all the time. Zebras were, you know, like our normal, right? And I never, never saw a child with ovarian cancer. So in in my years of study. Yeah. It's the
0: the man who refers them to me the most is uh, he himself is a gynecological oncologist and he himself is in the place of I've never seen this in all my years. I don't even know what to do. I don't even know where to begin with this. And so luckily we've created a nice collaboration over the years and working together, but or over the months around this really, but it's, it's devastating. And unfortunately, this is the trajectory where we are moving. And I think it Plays very well into part of the terrain issues, but in particular, the hormonal disruption in the world around us today that you are so expert in sharing with your listeners.
1: Mm. So, then what happened? Because <laughs> like, obviously, you're here today, radiantly healthy, gorgeous, energetic. I mean, so yeah.
0: I guess my personality, my mom would tell you as, you know, raising me, I was always stubborn and persistent. And I was also at a time in my life at this diagnosis where really didn't want to be here. I came from some very pretty traumatic background um, and, and back to try to take my life on one occasion and contemplated it regularly beyond that point. And so when this was handed to me on a silver platter, is how I look at the cancer diagnosis for me today, it was this opportunity. And it really lit something inside of me that said, wait a minute, I'm not ready to go. I don't want to die. This isn't what I want to do. So mind you, everybody, You know, so from that original diagnosis to my follow-up, second opinion, and even a third opinion beyond this was there's nothing you can do in, you know, palliative care. We could attempt to do the treatment, but it will likely kill you faster. Your organ function doesn't even allow us to consciously, ethically offer this. I mean, really, they were doing their jobs well of what they were met with at that time. So when the doors closed to there's nothing we can do, I was determined to at least figure out why this was happening in my body and to figure out if there was anything I could do about it. So I, I didn't have any belief system that I was going to survive this. I didn't have any belief system that I was going to live it any longer than that three-month expiration date they gave me. But I certainly wanted to be proactive. I did not want to be a victim to it. I wanted to understand it. So if I was going to go out, I wanted to go out with a deep understanding of the process. Part of that's my living learning brain. Part of that's my scientific side. I was pre-med in college. And so my brain was already already in that zone. I worked in the library for work studies. So I poached as many off the doobie decimal system and the microfish as I could. There was no Dr. Google. I was in a relatively poor liberal arts school, so we didn't have an updated library. And that's when I started stumbling upon the the early works of Dr. Otto Warburg. And his concept and his belief system that this was a metabolic disease at the mitochondrial level and not a genetic disease, which at the time of his work in the 1920s, it was like a crossroad happened. That's when, you know, a few years down the road, Watson and Crick came to be, and we put all of our eggs in the basket of genetics. And we hoped and had an expectation when we really figured out the genome through the Genome Project, you know, into the 80s and 90s, that we'd have the one cause, one cure answer. And all it did was make more questions, right? But still, a lot of researchers happening at the same time saying, wait a minute, you know, we don't even get DNA damage unless the mitochondrial function is not working well. Like, they're the protectors of the genome, so we need to back it up a notch and address it from there. So that resonated with me, and that's what led me on a journey to, to start to explore how to clean up my own terrain. And hopefully change outcomes. And that has, I mean, literally, it's been an unbelievable learning process. I did not get it right the first time. In fact, it took me a good decade or more to start to really figure out what worked for me. I was able to slow down the process. I was able to stabilize the process. Um, And even to this day, I wouldn't no one would ever on a scan or anything say that I'm cured. In fact, I don't believe in cure when it comes to cancer. I believe we all have those cells science backs me on this and that it's up to our bodies to create the system that keeps them in checks and balances. And I was way out of balance at that time in my life. And I've just sort of eked away learning different ways for my own body and being how to kind of recreate a balance. And then in doing so have met hundreds and thousands and even 10,000 patients along the way who helped teach me through their own patterns of what worked and didn't work. Along the way, and then luckily, (laughs) over time, the research started catching up with what I was learning in my own life and experience. Sort of at the bedside, but the bench research was starting to happen at the same time. And luckily, when people like Dr. Siegfried's book hit the hit the world in you know 2010, 2011, and Travis Christopherson's book hit out you know a few years after that, and suddenly we have these conversations happening. Now I'm, what I talked about for 25 years is now actually being properly studied and applied.
1: That is so, I mean, that's so great. What's your recommendation? Like what's your, like when you're working with someone with cancer, when they've gotten this diagnosis, we definitely want to hit, you know, let's hit prevention. Let's say, okay, for, let's start there. Let's start with what can we do to prevent ourselves from getting cancer? And I always think, you know, when I've had a client who's come to me after they've been cured from cancer, where I was like, well, you know, well, what caused it in the first place? Let's get rid of those causes. So I definitely want to hear your approach as as well as the integrative approach to cancer, because I believe that our, our standard of care model in teaching and treating cancer is just so limited. And there is a wide array of things that we can do that uh, certainly will improve the quality of life, if not the quantity of life of our clients. So Yeah.
0: Well, you know, when I think about this, I see sort of three categories in this. Now, ultimately, my dream job and likely yours and all my colleagues in this field would be to see people before there's a problem. <laughs> okay. Now, that's probably less than one-tenth of a percent of the type of patient I see today. I believe it's just part of just human nature that we're not encouraged or willing or motivated to change until we absolutely have to. And I would love to say that's different, but I just I just don't see it. So in that realm, ultimately the, the ideal place to be would be to have everybody do thorough personal terrain assessments, personal inventories on everything they put in, on, and around their life, including the people, and then also taking inventories of what types of traumatic experiences they had in their youth. We know that things like adverse childhood events significantly increase your risk of chronic illness and cancer in your adulthood. Um, Also look at things like EWG to look up your, and scorecard.org, which are ways to actually look at the zip codes of where you live to assess what's in your water, to assess what's in your environment around you and see what toxicants you would have been exposed to unbeknownst to you. And then look at things like your epigenetics, as simple
1: as Yeah. Give me that website again, EWG.org.
0: Yep and scorecard.org.
1: Scorecard. Now, scorecard, scorecard.org. It's a little
0: dated, but there's still some good, like you can still know, like I grew up in Wichita, Kansas, and it was very easy to see that because of beach, Boeing, Learjet, you know, all the industrial things going on there, as well as living in the flight pattern of that, as well as living near a military base, I was exposed to major known carcinogens. And in my hometown, in fact, I was just communicating with someone I grew up with who's all of the girls in the family have had cancer, the mothers had cancer, and they all grew up in this area in the same part of this, of the town that I did. And a lot of our colleagues and, and classmates, you know, we're talking and we're in our 40s here that are coming up with very dire diagnoses and terminal diagnoses of cancers and autoimmune diseases that seem really strange, right? So these are some ways we can start to understand what we're being exposed to. And then I'm a huge fan of knowledge, That you were dealt in this lifetime, but it's how you play the cards that you have control over. So, knowing some of your proclivities and predispositions, you can start to head those off at the pass early on. And then, some very basic, simple blood testing very basic to just assess your overall organ function, your metabolic health, such as your blood sugar balance, insulin response, and things like your inflammation, vitamin D levels, and your immune function that you can see so much of on a basic complete metabolic, or excuse me, complete blood count test. Well, if there were basically about 100 bucks of blood testing, I can know very specifically what's going on with someone and what their propensities are. So we can head those off as well. So that would be in the world of prevention to have that information ahead of time. But 99% of the patients I work with are coming to me when I'm their last resort. And they're also coming to me when they've already done multiple rounds of standard of care that has frankly left them even more broken than they were before because we don't end up with cancer. Despite everybody telling me I was healthy until I had cancer, that's an absolute impossibility. (laughs) But by the time they come to me, they've also added insult to injury. That's not to say that standard of care is not warranted. I believe it can be done so much better so much more efficiently and effectively, and so much more precisely it matched to the patient and their situation, and also at much lower doses. We're, we're now moving into the world of oncology instead of our maximum tolerated dose approach, which we've taken for years, which is basically like napalm the heck out of them and hope there's something still living at the end that will kill all the cancer cells and hopefully not the person along with it. That's been our approach with cancer for 70 years, to a point now of Push back some of that tumor burden just enough so that you can help rebuild what's underneath that and clean out what's underneath that to hopefully let the body step in and do this job, or at least make it a very maintenance-friendly disease process, just like diabetes or cardiovascular disease. So that's the switch we're starting to make in the world today. And then the other option that I'm starting to see more and more of, which is relatively new, are people newly diagnosed who are trying to make the best decision of the most best woven integrative approach to bring in the best of standard of care at what's appropriate for them with the best of integrative care. And it's through all of that testing i just mentioned for the prevention that also really helps us understand where people are before they start treatment or once treatments have failed them. And then we can really find a more focused, targeted roadmap versus just a guessing game. Because the guessing game, especially if you're above a stage two, is dangerous and deadly.
1: I agree so much. So, for all our listeners, wherever you're at, you know, I mean, the biggest thing is figure out what's going on and are we tracking to keep us better? And in my book, The Hormone Fix, I, I talk about key blood tests, right? Because we can order these ourselves now. We can get our physicians to order them too. We can, for like you said, $100, get some key markers. And for me, you know, beyond the blood count and the chemistry, it's the hemoglobin A1C, the HSCRP, the DHEAS, and the vitamin D25 hydroxy. And nothing makes me angrier when I see a client who's had breast cancer or some type of cancer and I check a vitamin D25 hydroxy and it's in like the teens or single digits. I just want to cry like that to me, you know, call it out as malpractice. Why hasn't this been tested? Right. I mean, this is, we know that the healthier levels decrease our risk of all kinds of chronic diseases and inflammatory disorders as as cancer is one of those and how powerful that is. So I love hearing you say that. And also the epigenetics, like 23andMe, accessible to all of us for $100. There's some key things. Are we MTHFR? What are some red flags? Are there some things that we should consider? So there's great ways that we can be the CEO, the president of our own health, right? Yes, and and that's what we want, Nisha. So I'm so glad to hear you say that too. And tell me more. I mean, I, I have like a thousand questions for you. I'm like, okay, well, which which way do we go from here? Exactly. Like, okay, what w- what would be your first steps when you have a client? Like, talk to us about a patient, this newly diagnosed individual coming to you, and she's coming to you saying, "Dr. Nisha, I've heard that you really help us beyond what I've been offered." what, you know, what can I do? Because I have children, I have grandchildren, I have my lover, I have a passionate, I have a bucket list. Yeah. Help me.
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, one of the things I used to do early on in my career, I'd stand up at a conference and say, how many of you have personally had or had a very close loved one have cancer in your lifetime? At that time, it was anywhere from like 20 to 30% of the room would raise their hand. This is like 20 years ago. Today, When I ask that question now, it's ridiculous. I now actually say, how many of you have not? And there might be three or four hands in the whole room. That's in a quarter century, folks. That's frightening with the World Health Organization saying that cancer statistics worldwide are expected to double by 2030. And so folks like you and I, we can't get past the, we're all aware, all these aware movements in healthcare you know, the cancer ribbon. It's like, we're all well aware of this now, but why? Why? So when you asked about where do I start with someone, there's two very simple places. In fact, I get asked that question so often from even just sitting next to somebody on an airplane that I created a little free on my website, drnasha.com. When you kind of go to the site after a moment, a pop-up will come out and it's just a little free download of first five steps after a diagnosis, right? So there's that because it's going to walk through a very tangible set of steps that you can do before you even start the process on any level. And in fact, the number one step, the very first step is stop, take a moment and breathe. Okay. Good advice. Mm -hmm. Honestly, this is probably one of the reasons I'm here today is because I didn't have social media. I didn't have Dr. Google. I didn't have thousands of well-meaning advisors around me trying to give me their, well, my aunt's dog did this treatment and they're doing, you know, like I didn't have that. In fact, for me, I kind of went into a hobbit hole because that's my nature. When things get tough for me, I kind of go inward or go into a cave. That's what's worked for me. So I did my own internal work to decide what was next but i think that it was also helpful because i didn't see statistics i didn't see you know the confusing mass of which diet which lifestyle which treatment do i do i didn't i wasn't being hit with all that overwhelming information so i want people to take a moment and stop and breathe and go inward in that moment as well i want you to remember that this is a process it's not an event you did not go to bed last night without cancer and wake up with it today it's taken anywhere per the research from 7 to 10 years to become big enough and loud enough to capture your attention. And it was likely something the last six years to two months prior to the actual diagnosis that you had an event, a circumstance, a situation that kind of woke it up, really got it going because our body actually is dealing with tens of thousands of cancer cells every day that it keeps in check and excretes or puts back into a state of dormancy. So we have sort of this tendency, this sort of soil that's growing it but it's like the the seedlings are under the soil for for years but then often there's something big in our lives that will cause that to sprout up through the soil and start to reach out to the sun to start to let us know that it's there and start to grow and that's where we tend to treat that phase in Western medicine, but we don't go below the soil level. And that's why bringing in a team, that's one of the other recommendations, bring on your tribe. Your doctors in the oncology world are expert at the tumor, but they are not expert at the environment and they're not expert at you. And so you need to bring on the people who are expert in those areas to support you, the whole person, while you have the experts also looking at the tumor. (laughs) So that's one step. The next option is in the front of our book we have put together a 10-part questionnaire. I love questionnaires for myself. I was always as a teenager like going through my Vogue, you know, magazine questionnaires all the time and you do a beautiful job of that in your book as well. I think it helps give people a starting point, right?
1: Yeah, yeah and and then your book title, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. The Metabolic Approach to Cancer and you have that The Metabolic Approach to Cancer Facebook page and you know, we can get there through drnaisha.com. So I just want to give our, that resource out loud and clear.
0: Yeah, but then those 10 questions you get to, or those 10 different drops in the bucket, which we'll quickly jump into in a moment, people can do their own assessment. They don't need a doctor, they don't need anybody with them. They just take the questionnaire. There's 10 parts, there's 100 questions, so 10 questions under each section. And whichever section had the most yeses for you is where you start. That's your priority. It's giant quilt. If you pull one thread anywhere, all of it's going to unravel, or all of it is going to stay together. So anywhere you start is going to be helpful on the whole. And then what you'll also notice is, you know, we kind of started our conversation around my wonky hormones, but my wonky hormones were also fed by extreme stress, by really malnourishing my body, by toxicant exposures and endocrine disruptors by really off circadian rhythm and lots of inflammation I was overworking out and not re- rebuilding myself. I was a, an Uber athlete. You know there were, these are the things that actually made my hormones wonky. So it's not like hormones are in their own box.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, uh, that exactly right because in and of itself, our hormones are designed to be pro- protective, reproductive, building, restorative, regenerative. It's the dysfunction, the, the competitors to our natural hormones. It's the toxins to our natural hormones that throw our hormones out of whack. And that's something that I'm really trying to fight, nation, in this community, in the, in the world, is women's fear, the anti-estrogen fear, right? Estrogen is our feminine hormone. It is a beautiful hormone. It's the toxic estrogens. It's you know our body's inability to detoxify estrogens that affect us more. And I, and I, and I think that's really important to understand. And, and I love that you got to the antecedents to your cancer. You look at the environment. Certainly, the the pesticides, the herbicides, the sprays, the toxins, the classroom toxins, right? And the emotional, spiritual, I mean, stress. Cortisol is the key that unlocks the gate to our boundaries, our borders, our protective barrier. Cortisol is the key that creates these leaky membranes, and and it's something that you know, unrelenting can really affect us. So I want to talk to you because one thing that I would ask my clients is how was your, not that we need any more maternal guilt. Let me just say that. I asked this question, we need no more maternal guilt, but how was the health of health and stress level of your mom when she was pregnant with you?
0: Here's the thing. And my mom, you know, I mean, the good thing is my mom and I have a relationship now that it, it brings me to tears of what types of hurdles she and I have gotten through together to survive in this world, as well as even survive things in our relationship. So at me being almost 48 and her just turning 72, we're in this place where we love each other in a way and see each other in a way that we're like, we recognize we did the best we could with the tools we had in the world around us. So there is no like blame game. So I really want to put that on the table, but here's the reality. My mother did not marry the man she loved. She kind of chose somebody out of like hurt of not being with the person she loved. That's one battle to her system. She also had her own extreme traumas. Why I bring up my mother's traumas, my grandmother's traumas, my great-grandmother's traumas is that we have plenty of evidence now showing that at least four generations previous to us impacts our own epigenetic expression, our own health. And so the lineage of the women that my mother came from had a lot of trauma as well. So it trickles through and down and up, if you will. So the, the other thing is that before I was born, my mom had another pregnancy and she knew there was something wrong and no one listened to her. Is this theme starting to sound familiar? (laughs) And she knew, she knew, she knew. And by the time she was in her ninth month, they realized, like going into labor time, they realized she had a, a stillborn child and ignored her through this whole process, even though she knew. And because of that, and because of the time around then, no one mourned the loss. There was no space in our culture to help her process that grief. Right, and so I was the bomb of hurry up and get pregnant very quickly to heal that loss. So I was to feel a void, fill a void of loss from other losses in her life, and I came into that zone to fill it. Well, that didn't do it because I was supposed to be a boy in my dad's eyes, and so he was pissed. Honestly, he literally came into the room when they had when I was born and threw the football down and left when he realized I was a girl and not a boy. So that these are like the trumps. So just to give you that flavor. And then the level of of trauma both of my folks came from, and the the level of trauma and addictions, and uh, poverty, and lack of education, and abuse, and many, many facets, especially after my parents' divorce, that really went up in the realm for me of a lot of my father's friends. I I don't even know why I choose those words to say friends, but associates at the time, and other things that fed into this. So when you look at an ACE score, an adverse childhood event score, it looks for 10 particular things you mix to before the team. Just to give context to you and your listeners, I had 10 out of 10 of those traumas prior to my 18th year on this planet. And when you look at that for basically every yes you have on that questionnaire, of which 64 percent of Americans have one yes, and anybody with three yeses or more has a higher proclivity towards cancer and chronic illness in their adulthood, and we know that each yes above and beyond increases your risk of those conditions by 20 percent, it was no wonder that that was there. And so recognizing that as I started in my site, I was chemistry biology major in college. My diagnosis switched me to psychology biology major, and basically pre-constructed on my own a psychoneuroimmunology major, because I started to also stumble across the work of Candace Pert and others. And that's when I started learning from the other world out there of how our psychology and our traumas can impact our physiology and our biology. How lucky was I to stumble upon that? Because if I had just done the diet and just done all the treatments and just focused on that, if I had ignored those skeletons in the closet, I would definitely not be here today. And It's an ongoing process. I keep thinking I'm done with it. Like it's such a human nature. And then like going back for a funeral of a dear friend recently, back to kind of the area in which I grew up, I am shocked at how many little triggers are still there. It's like, oh, I thought I dealt with that. Well, good. Still more work to do. Humbling. It's a humbling, beautiful, dynamic, ongoing process.
1: Yeah, and you're really good about putting the positive twist on it, like looking through rose-colored glasses, as my mom would say. But, you know, I think how how life-saving that is. You know, I ask about the pregnancy because too, you know, after I lost my son and became pregnant with Ava, I'm sure I lived off her adrenals. You know, was she gonna survive? What's gonna happen? You know, and I'm sure like that affect and that affected her. And I'm like, okay, what can I do now? Knowing that to give her healthy adrenals, healthy, you know, healthy boost. But I know that I, I lived off her adrenals during that pregnancy as well. And and so there's that there's that bond. And also the whole generational health, spiritual, emotional, metabolic, soul ties. I mean, all that stuff comes through generational health too. And so recognizing that is part of healing, right, is one of the many arms or legs, so to speak, that we. From that's powerful, and I love that you're saying this because I mean, this is true integrative worldly approach, right? To healing, and then with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, as well as post traumatic stress, the area that you know is my expertise is perimenopause, menopause, and beyond this transition stage of our life one of these transitions of aging when we're in a transition like this hormonally, et cetera, these adverse childhood experiences tend to reflare. They tend to resurge. And that creates a harder perimenopausal or menopausal transition. So I believe for men too, but certainly for women, veterans of foreign wars, aces, tougher time in the perimenopause. And certainly for me, that was part of my experience. You know, it's like just when you think you've dealt with something, whoo, these dragon heads come up, right?
0: <laughs> You're like Really, and that, I love it because you just gave me an aha. Because I'm entering into the perimenopause years, and I'm like, okay, yeah, well, that just—you actually just brought me a huge piece of for my own awareness and healing. I'm like, oh yeah, okay, let's just roll with this. That's showing that I'm in some transition, and, and of course, you're going to revisit some things that might still need to be addressed.
1: So. Mm-hmm. Oh. Mm-hmm.
0: Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that. It's kind of a juicy, like you said, this is your intimate couch talk time but it's also the part of our medical field that no one really likes to talk about. It's not kind of the sexy, fun, you know, people love to get their IV vitamin C and their, you know, like potentiated chemotherapy or their herbal remedies, but no one really wants to dive deep into some of the psychological um, aspects of all of this.
1: And and it's re-traumatizing too. It can be traumatizing for the physician as well, understanding that, it may cause triggers in, in their own journey. But I think like, you know, what did Shrek say better out than in yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, it is, it's better out than in that's opening up energetic channels, which can hormones or energetic molecules. I use hormones, like in this period of neuroendocrine vulnerability, that entering in a transition of aging, I mean, progesterone's dec- drops significantly and estrogen and so like using you know ways to empower our body's natural hormone production but then as well supplementing can be so protective so beneficial and but we have to do it safely and again I'm bioidentical hormones and I know we're going to touch on that in in these 10 areas so
0: yeah and so when i look at the bucket you're right. It's like we've now kind of hit a few of them just on the outskirts. We kind of actually covered sort of the bookends of the bucket, which was the epigenetics and the mental emotional. Those are 10 of the big drops that go into our mitochondrial bucket or our internal soil or our terrain or our extracellular matrix or whatever label you come to understand it, you know, from more of the esoteric to more of the scientific. But the other bucket drops would include things like our sugar intake, our carbohydrate balance, our metabolic factory burning efficiency, which you go so beautifully into your book because we're all kind of, it's all like you're supposed to be hybrid engines, but it's like we have a brick on the sugar burning gas pedal of our car and our body has forgotten how to use these other sources. And we've gotten stuck there and that's really rusting us and revving our engine in a way that has never happened in human existence before. So we have to pull that brick off the accelerator pedal and help the body find its way of being that hybrid engine again. So, I think that you do really a beautiful job in your book to say really, it's really hard to correct these imbalances if you're still just chugging down the carbohydrates, <laughs> you know, because they are. They're flinging off cortisol and estrogen and, you know, causing inflammation and causing metastatic and metastasis and angiogenesis and all the, you know, scary things in the cancer world, but the scary things in all chronic illness and even symptoms of hormonal dysfunction in the transitional years. So that's a big one. And then the quick other drops are environmental, we've alluded to. Microbiome, which I know is also your jam in there, and things, immune function, inflammation, cardiovascular oxygenation, and kind of movement circulatory processes, hormones, obviously, and then the circadian rhythm slash stress response. Those are the big drops that go in and each of them need to be addressed accordingly. But even as I said early on, if you address even one of them, you're impacting the whole.
1: Good point, and exactly The like areas that I think are so important to cover. So everyone listening is like, okay, all right. It's not just one thing. It's not just about what I eat, right? It's not just about these these hormones, these hormones that are, you know, are good for us, not good for us. What's going on there? So so then, getting to these ten areas in in an individual, right? You're doing this assessment. You reviewing the ten areas. The one with the most yeses, right? The one with the highest scores and actually highest toxicity. We're going to just, you know, make the biggest impact in. So let's address that first. And then what?
0: And then what? So, and then what, what happens is I encourage people to continue testing. So if you're coming to me and you're aggressively cancering, you are going to be doing monthly labs with me to make sure we're on the right path because my mantra has always been test, assess, address, and never guess as well as adjust course as needed that's like the ongoing. So it's not a one and done. We are dynamic, just like the hormone thing. Our hormones are literally not the same day to day, definitely week to week, month to month, season to season and seasons of our lives as well. So our needs change accordingly. What happens a lot in the world of integrative oncology or oncology in general, we put somebody on a single treatment and we're like, see you later and send them off. When people have a recurrence or a progression, they then blame the treatment but they don't blame the fact that their body was giving signals well before it became a problem to say, hey, we need more attention put over here. Or hey, we, we need to change course. This isn't working. So today as an example, I have a consult later this afternoon with a physician about a patient of his that I'd seen previously. And she had a very aggressive cancer type that i knew just because she did went through standard of care and i helped her basically patch her together to make it through alive her standard of care treatment that was the role she wanted me to play i explained to her multiple times that at the end of treatment when you're ringing that bell after chemo or radiation you're not done. in fact you're just getting started and i had warned her back in march your labs have been very frightening to me for a while and we've been kind of blaming it on the standard of care treatment but I've done this long enough to know that I have plenty of patients who have gorgeous looking labs all the way through standard of care. So this, we, can't ex, we can't excuse it away on that. So what I need you to do between now and the time we see each other is I need you running your labs every month to make sure that that was in fact the treatment side effect and not more more non-responsive cancer cells in your body. And so where her last test with me was in March. I have an assessment with her today. She's not done a single test until last week. And I have to have the news today with her doctor that will then be shared with her that she's in massive recurrence or progression. I don't think she ever went into remission. And this is someone who's very young and it breaks my heart because I knew and I kept trying to tell her because I've seen she's such an example of how many patients of mine I have gotten through this process and just put their head in the sand or frankly, are just like, I'm so done with it. I don't want to look at it. That's really dangerous if you've had a stage three or four cancer diagnosis history. That's just, I'm sorry. It's it's not what people want to hear, but it's the reality. And so what concerns me is that she really went out and she's like, and she's of course telling both the doctor and myself in her updates, I'm great. I'm feeling fabulous. I'm be-. like, you're not, you're not. That is, that's wishful thinking because her overzealous I'm great. And the way she's articulating is literally, frankly, BS. Like it's, you know, it's like, it's her wish. And it's like, you can't wish this. You can't magical think this away. This is what I've been trying to help you cure because she over treated everything. and I kept telling her that for, since she started treatment in 2017, they're over aggressively treating you. And this will only over aggressively create more resistant cells. You need to be checking everywhere along the way. She'd kind of like be ready to do it, but she always fell victim to the big academic universities the best of the best and what they do to tell her what to do. And yet every time I would tell her this, within a couple days or weeks of me having a conversation, research would come out and support exactly what I was telling her. I'd send it to her. She'd send it to their team. We'd think we'd get into the right place and then stop. So I thought, well, at least I know we're getting through the treatment and then she'll be ready to hit this hard. But human nature pushes us to do other things. I think when you're also really young, you think, and I know this because I did this dance for 10 years. I kept thinking, oh, it's done now. (laughs) Go back to the way things were right? But you cannot heal from the soil in which you got sick.
1: Exactly.
0: And this young woman never addressed that soil. She thought she did, but it was more like she was just kind of rubbing around the top and maybe raking a little bit, but she never really dove deep. And so it's really painful. Like I think about this, I have anxiety in my chest of, I have to have the bearer of bad news, but here's the thing her oncology team won't say anything. They'll be like, oh, your markers ebb and flow, like your breast cancer markers ebb and flow. They're not ebb and flowing. They're going up each, you know, like each time. And these other markers, they don't even know to look at a CRP or to look at a lactase dehydrogenase or a sedimentation rate, which is what I run every single month on my patients because that tells me exactly how they're responding. Or CBC to look at their neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio, which after chemo should come back to normal. If it's not, it's prognostic. That you are within a very narrow window of having a recurrence. This is like this is not natasha literature. This is PubMed. Well, if like you could go right now and, and Google in in PubMed neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio in all case mortality, and you will start to. So the
1: higher the neutrophil to the lymphocyte ratio, the increase mortality across all conditions, not
0: just cancer. And it's often our first clue, like the other person I have a consult with on their behalf today is with a person who has a terrible NLR and they had a stage one breast cancer and they're trying to, they're actually like, luckily they're coming to me before they've added insult to injury. So this will be easy to be like, your my immune system has not been working for a long time. That's why the cancer came on board. you caught it early. Now you can correct the imbalances. And some people, I've done this long enough, and maybe you can relate to this, that some people are like you're stressing me out just by saying these things. But I guess I look at it, just my nature is I look at this as information and and empowerment and education and the ability to make choices in the situation. So for me, I like to look at all the data for myself because then that helps prompt me to go, I need to be less or more strict in this area of my life. I need to be, you know, I need to maybe add something else to the mix. I maybe need to explore this component a little bit more of my health. For someone who was given no time on this planet, And still, after years later, we found out I had the BRCA gene. And years after that, I got my epigenetics. And one of my well-known colleagues in the field of epigenetics, I had my name scratched out. I had him look at my genes, and he's like, "This person's effed," you know, like that was like they're like every broken thing you could have. I had, and so by Western medical scientific standards, there's no reason why we should be having this conversation but along the way, how to change the trajectory, how to change my own statistics and change my own outcomes. And I've empowered thousands and thousands of others to do the same. So when I get met with somebody like this, that I know has it in her to change it, it breaks my heart.
1: Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's too late. coming.
0: Yeah. I don't think it's too late, but I saw it coming and I tried to tell her and I tried to head it off at the pass, but that's not my journey. That's not my contract. Right? My contract is to shine the light on the blind spots, and the rest is up to the person I'm coaching or supporting, whether it's their doctor or themselves.
1: I, I so hear you. I can think of a couple of patients right now, too. It's like I saw it coming year after year after year. I'm like, let's do this, do this, do this, and then give them the diagnosis of cancer because they didn't do it. And then uh, I specifically remember one client, she ended up being diagnosed. I found her lump, breast cancer. And she goes, man, you've been telling me for years now, tell me I'll do it, you know, and she did and it changed her life, but it took that, like it took that and it breaks your heart because you're like, I can see the writing on the wall. You know, I can see the writing on the wall and that we take these steps. Nisha, let's move into hormones. Let's move into this hormone discussion. <laughs> I'm you know, while we're scared to coffee, here with you, <laughs> bring it, bring it. All right there's the good and the bad. This is, this is my area of expertise. This is what I lecture on. I'm always in the research, right? I'm like, show me the research, but I also have the clinical, you know, I've, I've had the clinical years of experience with my clients as well, because I would often get the clients who've had cancer diagnoses and are just left to die slowly. Right. I mean, just that, just to suffer, so, like integrating modalities and integrative treatments, bioidentical hormone therapy as indicated, and always looking at you know the detox pathways, opening that up, and the whole lifestyle medicine that we incorporate. So, I definitely this is your area of expertise. I. I would love to talk with you about this and what you're seeing and, and what improvements are being made and where, where, are, where are those fine lines of concern? Perfect.
0: Well, first of all, you know, when I, I had a general family practice for many years, and then in the area where I lived, there was no endocrinologist. So I had to basically become an endocrinologist. So I really love it. Like it's really it's fascinating to me. I love the HPA access. I love, you know, all those things are fun for me. So I'm that puzzle piece person. And when I started learning early on, because I was also trained in bioidentical hormones a whole bit, is that most well, well I should say every time, because I've been at this for so long. But in my personal clinical experience, I could probably count on one hand how many times I've actually had to use exogenous hormone replacement therapy, bioidentical, obviously. Because what happened is just like we talked about: it, whatever drop you if you work on in the bucket, you will affect the whole. I started personally seeing in the world today, and again, we all kind of draw on the patients that we connect with and so knowing that that's my filter you probably draw in a whole different filter of patients that's perfect but what i was seeing is that we kind of put menopause the disease out there but it's been a natural right of who we all are since the beginning of time the real disease is western civilization and the stressors that it puts on us and the exposures we have because when a woman goes through menopause in a natural state of being her adrenals basically are like, the, you know, the ovaries sort of call them up and say, hey, we're going to retire. We're going to hand you the baton and we need you to take over. And because that's really what theoretically happens is in that moment. But today, by the time that call comes into the adrenals, the adrenals are already, they're like laying on a hammock somewhere. <laughs> they might even be buried. They might be dead. They might just be burning, fizzling off. They're so broken down. There's no place for the, for the ovaries to hand that baton to. So that's where we'll start to self-medicate with either more exogenous hormones or lots of sugar or over-exercising or whatever we start to try and patchwork together a system. And it will definitely make us feel a little bit better in the short term. But fast forward to what I see at the bedside in my realm, because now my filter, mind you, is through the cancer filter, is that if you have epigenetic hiccups, SNPs with COMT, which is the catecholamine SNP, with MTHFR, with SHBG, so the sex um, hormone binding globulin, with ESR1 or 2, which is all about basically blood clot factors and its relationship to hormones and fibrinogen levels. If you have SNPs around CYP2D6 and CYP1B1, these are the SNPs that are are trying to filter the exogenous um, hormones that are coming at us from plastics and ground up and you know, things in our food supply and drug supply. Drangles warm up, not filter. Water, you know, it goes into your city water system and it doesn't filter out there. So you're filtering it through your own body. So if you have those hiccups, especially if you have COMT, SIP one b one and VDR, that's what I see pretty much because I now categorize these things. So my patients with the most aggressive cancers tend to have that collection of SNPs. And Because of the nature of my practice, I've mostly seen, I mean, you see everything now, but the majority of my patient load has been in the ovarian, endometrial, and breast cancer world. Mainly because women are the people who are going to reach out to somebody like you and I. So I'm getting more men over time, but those are kind of the most classic ones I see. So most of them are very hormonally hiccuped somewhere along the way. And almost, well, I would, I would say probably 98% of them had been on birth control pills, had been on, I had taken IVF, had been on hormones somewhere in some form along the way. And that seemed to have clogged the works. when we really started looking at their hormonal metabolism their SNPs and their labs. And so I'm a fan of more salivary or urine testing because I wanna look at the metabolites and I wanna look at the relationships of the hormones and I wanna see how the body's processing them. I am not a fan of serum testing because frankly, hormones should be in the receptor sites, not in the serum. So if they are in the serum, that's usually a problem. So if anybody says, oh, your hormones on serum are low, we need to give you more hormones, I get hackles at my back pretty quickly and then say, let's look at the data again and look at relationships, especially the metabolites, especially 216s and 4 hydroxyestrons. And then what I also explain to people, this is where I'll get into it. When I'm at a big medical conference, I'll ask doctors, how many of you think bioidentical hormones are natural hormones? And probably every hand in the audience is raised. And then my biochemist husband comes out of my brain who wants to scream a lot of drop F-bombs and get up on a soapbox, scream at the top of my lungs, that's completely wrong. These are synthetic hormones. And the only reason they're called bioidentical is because our body recognizes them as their own, but they also have a much higher binding affinity than our natural endogenously produced hormones or even phytohormones that are much more difficult to pop off the receptor site and metabolize and process through. And so I tell people, it's like, think about a garage and think about yourself being a hoarder. That's what like taking bioidentical hormones are like for anybody with some of these epigenetic hiccups I talked about. Your garage is filled up so much that there's no more room for thyroid or insulin or pituitary, like nothing else gets in there or even other hormones. So that's why you'll often see women feel good for a while on exogenous hormones until that garage gets so full they have to take more or change it around a bit. It's like just rearranging the garbage. And so that's what I've seen. And what I've been able to do with these women who have come to me on these hormones is get them safely and gently off of them, or women who've had cancer and are afraid to go back on them, which in my opinion, from what I've seen is probably a good idea to look otherwise, We've been able to come in and correct other imbalances, mostly through the blood sugar, mostly through adrenals, and mostly through like the gut microbiome and just opening the amunctories, seems to sort of write things enough that their hormonal relationships and metabolism and even levels go up naturally. And I wouldn't say this except where I test, test, test. I'm like a test freak. So I get to see this in real time. And I also get the person on the other side saying, wow, I was on hormones for 20 years. And I feel better now than I did on them. So I think we've gotten into this habit. So that's me. I get a lot of people in the functional medicine world um, up in arms because I don't think, especially in the cancer world, anybody has any business being on these, unless you can show me the data that it's absolutely safe and that you're testing them. If you've got the money like Suzanne Summers to test yourself basically monthly or at least quarterly in all of those metabolites that we talked about, as well as your other labs, Then maybe only then could I feel comfortable in the cancer world using exogenous hormones. But I just don't see it today on the planet because we're swimming in so much exogenous hormone soup that's toxic hormones that the, the system is getting jammed up. The communication system is getting jammed up in our cells.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I definitely hear your argument here and just through clinical experience, being able to see, right? It takes more than hormones to fix our hormones, right? It takes more than hormones to fix our hormones and it's never just one thing. And, and certainly like the nutrition, the lifestyle, that's key. And clinically where I've used like natural bioidentical hormones, bioidentical progesterone, and I agree, there's many hormones touted as bioidentical, but aren't. You know, even the McKenna, the progesterone intramuscular injection, it's not, it has a additional molecules on it that makes it a not bioidentical progesterone. The research was done in bioidentical, same molecule, same molecule progesterone. So those are alarming, you know, estradiol, certain forms of estradiol are not bioidentical. So we need to be really clear about that. And also, again, always, I'm always looking at detoxification markers, but there, again, I would never prescribe hormones if we weren't doing these other things. So areas that, you know, I am an advocate certainly with bioidentical progesterone, bioidentical, you know, DHEA, bioidentical and through transdermal methods versus oral and getting the oral metabolites and, you know, 90% metabolized. So oral versus transdermal and looking at the research on big scales, looking at the benefits and then certainly the work, you know, a lot of the work in in androgens, Dr. Rebecca Glazer's work with testosterone and how that can help certain individuals with the life consequences, right? But again, there are many ways. We want to improve metabolism. We want to improve cell-to-cell communication. That's what caused the cancer in the first place. This is just one little addition that we can make as a choice to improve us. But I will tell you too, in the clients, being a clinician, working in 20 years in gynecology, doing breast biopsies, fine needle aspirations, watching with ultrasound, thermography, and everything else, the clients I used bioidentical progesterone on, those symptoms resolved. They resolved, but I'm doing other things too. I'm doing other things too. So the client that refused the progesterone, I diagnosed her with breast cancer. I can specifically think of a doctor's wife that I was like, you know, I feel like you're definitely estrogen dominant. We're working on these things, but... This will help because not everyone with a motivation of cancer, you're going to make all these lifestyle changes, right? You're pretty motivated. The average population is like, I'm invincible. I'm, you know, this, I'm a, you know, doctor's wife. I go out to eat five nights a week, have wine every night. I'm like, well, let me help you, right? Nope. Diagnosed with breast cancer. Another, you know, another client, I can think of the same thing. And so these are, again, the context of empowering our health. It's never one thing. I would never write a hormone prescription if we're not doing other things as well. So I think it's important to understand. And those in the space that are looking and that are just part of the vitality clinics or testosterone clinics, I have big gripes with that. I have huge gripes with that because we're not monitoring where the hormones are going. And that's it's, it's just, what's the overall benefit? We're increasing divorce rates yeah. in those clinics. I mean- Let's be honest. You're absolutely right. Let's let's be honest. We are not helping the whole individual. So I'm a hundred percent with you. So I I definitely want to hear the metabolic code, like healing the the metabolic code, because that's key. No matter what we're doing, I think that cell improving cell to cell communication, I want to get to those levels of cell to cell communication. So we turn off those metastatic cells, right?
0: And it's so so funny because when I think about like, for me, it's hard for me to think sex hormones without also saying, so I called it the three S's. sex sugar stress they they are they're like all in bed together never. right always they're like right. yeah they never go anywhere without each other <laughs> and so if you are someone who's throwing in like this is the beauty of you compared to many many of our colleagues out there is you are thoughtful about the whole organism wrapped around that bioidentical hormone offering Right? You are looking at other inroads to change it. You know, it sounds like you're also testing and analyzing and making sure it's still safe for them. And you actually do have the understanding of the metabolomics and the estrogenomics and all those, you know, and all those concepts that change that communication, that signaling pathway. So you don't even have to be an oncology expert to know when it's backfiring and when it's moving and how to support it on either direction but many people don't. And it's very sexy and nice and very lucrative to give hormones. It just is. There's entire conferences and people who make an entire living on this. And so the the hard part is there was even a person in my community who was a nurse practitioner who was considered like the the first person in my community, small community, to offer bioidentical hormones. They frankly were being dished out like MMs. You know, They were just everywhere. And for years, we had these conversations back and forth, both with each other, but also kind of behind the scenes. You know, she was telling everybody how kind of bad I was, and I was telling everyone kind of how bad she was. And and basically, there was a point when she told my patients that she will stay on her bioidentical hormones until she either went number one, has a heart attack or gets cancer. And it was sort of like, ooh, we don't want to put that energy out into the universe for anybody, right? But- no,
1: no, no, never say that, y'all. Never say there's so much negativity with that statement. Like you were just calling it on. It's like game
0: on. Yeah. And I think she was trying to do it to more empower a patient like,
1: this is fine. I'm doing it. You're doing
0: it. And she had her own life experience, which is our human nature, right? That prompted her to start reading more in ancestral health and paleo health and low carb health and the the three S's as they relate to one another and her own metabolomics and epigenomics and all these different components, reading your book, reading my book and shifted. She's like, I need to be doing things differently for myself and for my patients. And now she's more of a overall terrain centric functioning person who super rarely uses hormones at this point. And that's what she built her empire on in our community. It's really cool to see that now in the later stages of her life, that she's healthier now than she was at all the time she was pumping this up because she got everything else in harmony. Because I think our human nature, even um, Dr. Anna, as you think about it, you have this beautiful, thoughtful approach to it, but the patient doesn't think about it this way. They're just like, if I'm taking my metformin, I can eat my my donuts. If I'm taking my hormones, I can, you know, not worry about hydrating and eating well to keep my skin integrity up, you know, or you know what I'm saying? Like we we default just like today in the keto world, everyone's like, I can just keep eating crap and take exogenous ketones. That's these are dangerous things, It is our, right? It's our human nature to take the pill and take, it, take the easy road. So there's that side of danger as well. But because I do test so much, I do see that the, the, most of us are pretty gummed up in the works and tend to hibernate and hold on to a lot of these um, hormones in the tissues where they don't belong. So the main cancers that are hormonally driven by exogenous hormones, both bioidentical, natural, and xenoestrogens, ex- you know, are breast, endometrial, ovarian, lung, colorectal, and prostate. And interestingly enough, the seventh one that's really come to my attention because I'm testing much more frequently, brain. And when you think about all these organs, they are part of that 3S process, right? So they're very much going to be sensitive to stress response, stress hormone, sugar response, and sex hormone response. And it's not so much about having too much or too little, it's about the balance and the timing and the flow and the interplay. But we've all, as I said, we've kind of all been pushed into a brick on the sugar burner. And we've all been pushed into living on a planet that's incredibly stressful. And we've all been pushed into a place where we have so much hormonal information coming into us and at us at all times, we can't process it fast enough. So it's just skewed our environmental, epigenetic, evolutionary, we call it the evolutionary mismatch, right? Our mitochondrial mismatch. We are living in a world that basically takes us away from our natural tendencies, our natural patterns. And so the job of what you and I get to do with people, and I love this about your book, is return people sort of back to the Garden of Eden, back to their mitochondrial match that, that resonates in their own true nature.
1: Mm-hmm. And tests don't guess, right? Tests don't guess. I love that if you can share kind of a, a day in your life, something, somehow you start your day or a day in your life, share that with our audience. Because again, and and for those of you that are listening in, in Podcast Addict or iTunes, you got to come and watch the video on YouTube because you see the passion, the energy, the radiance of this woman, Dr. Nasha. So she has just been rocking it. So I'm just awed. So tell me what you're doing because we're on board.
0: I love it. Well, you know, I mean, again, things I've learned over the years, but my current routine that's working for me is that in the last couple of years, my husband and I, we used to make fun of snowbirds, but we're now increasingly becoming them. And so we,
1: I know, which is- a- Come to Georgia. Same I Here I'm we are.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there when you won't be there, which is unfortunate, but I really, like I've been a mountain girl through and through. I grew up in the plains of Kansas. I went to college, met and married my husband, you know, had this beautiful home, living world in Durango, Colorado. But as pre- much like June 23rd comes around, I start to already mourn the loss of summer and the light of a new addition. So much of that is around the transition you so alluded to earlier. It's like I'm needing other things to prime the pump of my HPA axis and my gut-brain axis and my overall health and well-being. So now we spend half our year in Mexico and the other half in Colorado. Although this year we're both traveling so much internationally, that trying to travel anywhere from Durango is like trains, planes, and automobiles, and was adding to our stress, including the fact that this year in Durango, on their newspaper this last week, showed that we've had more flight cancellations in the last year than ever before. So that was creating massive stress in me trying to get places. So we decided to relocate to live at my sister's in Altadena for the rest of the year to see how this feels to be closer to some large airports that can get us options because there's only two options in Durango and things like that. So we're trying to create a lifestyle that, that though we're always in stress, we have a different ability to respond to the stress. So that fast forward is that I'm recognizing things in my life that help bring ease into my being. So the first part of my day is always a massive cuddle fest with my two dogs, my husband and my cat in bed before we even get out in the morning. And we get up early, like we're sunrisers, you know, in the winter months, even before sunrise, you know, five-ish in the morning is a really normal natural wake up time for us. But we're also in bed by nine or nine thirty Typically summer's a little bit later because it's lighter later. So sleep is my drug of choice. That is what helps keep me in rhythm and my balance, my hormones and my, my stress response and my sugars actually are very sensitive and responsive if I don't get good sleep. And probably a lot of your listeners can you know can attest to that for themselves. And then what I do is typically either get in my infrared sauna and meditate or just go outside and meditate if I'm not sauning because it's 93 degrees right here and doesn't feel very good to hop into a sauna. So I might stand in front of the juve light for 20 minutes and do some stretching or definitely find a time in the morning to do some thoughtful meditation practice. That's how my day starts. I don't pick up cell phone. I don't get on the computer. I don't immediately jump into technology because I start my engine starts revving the moment I do that. All right. Then I typically fast in the morning, anywhere from 13 hours to 16 hours every day during the week. And once a week, I do an all day fast. I have a metabolic system that I actually, if my husband would say, if I could be a breatharian, I would be. I actually feel best when I don't eat. I've had so many digestive issues, so many food allergen issues, so many things in my life that I think just giving my body a break to let the gut just do its thing and clean out before I put something new in has been really instrumental in helping me in my own health. And then at some point I try and always get in my 15,000 steps a day. So walking is my also exercise of choice. And then two to three times a week, anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes of a little bit of HIIT training, you know, like just start little high intensity things that I can just do like push ups, burpees, pull-ups, you know, jumping jacks, like simple. I don't, I hate gyms. I can't be indoors. Um, wherever I need to be in the winter, when we're in Mexico, we stand up paddleboard and do lunges out there and play on that. And you know, that's more like whatever I can do in nature is what is what really sets my 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 soul on fire. And then specifically, I work a lot, and it's my passion. And so I just make sure I start and end my day with ways that are nurturing and self care. And I try and make sure I'm watching the sunrise and the sunset, or at least be out in the light of the day that's doing that because that's resetting my pineal gland and my HPA axis and really charging my mitochondrial batteries as well. And those are sort of my non negotiables. So that's sort of the simple routine. It seems really basic, but I recognize from most of the people I talk to, Especially the average of Americans spend less than 15 minutes outdoors a day, definitely aren't getting even 5,000 steps in a day, definitely aren't getting exposure to light. Like last night was the moonlight. I make sure I sit out under the moonlight during full moon and new moon to keep my cycles balanced, which it always almost, I'm almost to the absolute rhythm of the moon cycle with my own menstrual cycle, even in my going into perimenopause years. And so these are the things that nature and the rhythms of her really fuel me.
1: Mm, yeah, no, I love that. I'm just nodding away saying, yes, these are the practice. I want every one of you doing out there. I want every one of you doing. Are there any supplements that you like or are like, man, I, I just got to keep up with this?
0: The only pharmaceutical I take, and it's only been in the last few years, that is, I didn't realize how helpful it was for me until I started is low dose naltrexone. And with my collection of autoimmune conditions and my cancer, I got our polycystic ovarian, Hashimoto's, and endometriosis, all of which are autoimmune diseases. And if I skip out of my low-dose naltrexone for more than a few weeks, my, I can feel it in my ankles where my RA had initially settled. So I, I stay on that, but I pulse it because it's also a good anti-cancer approach when you do four days on, three nights off. So that's my only pharmaceutical. And that's relatively new, six, seven years into my life of me taking it, though I've used it in thousands of patients over the years successfully. And then I'm pretty much non-negotiable with vitamin D and my dose varies winter, summer, based on my lab results. It took me a long, When I got my levels run, they were 11, the first time I ran them, right? And this is like, like when you said that, I, I, it just drives me crazy because if a patient has, you know, we should all be at least at 50 just for like baseline. If you're dealing with a disease, right? And if you're dealing with a disease, it should be therapeutically higher. And if someone is below 30, I'm already looking for cancer. And if it's below 20, it's, there's definitely no way cancer isn't on board. Like it's just, it just says it, you have to have it shores up so much in our system. The other thing, because I'm this double homozygous calm tea and, and lots of other fun issues there, I need a lot of magnesium for my nervous system. And to help my catecholamine process through my body, stress is my biggest beast. So no matter how I eat and no matter how my hormones are, my stress is what I'm always working on. That's why mindfulness. And those rhythm and patterns are really critical for my balance of my cortisol and balance of my stress response system. So magnesium D3, LDN are kind of my always. And then I just kind of use whatever I need as needed. I'm really a terrible pill taker. And I want, you know, my patients are like, oh, I'm taking all these pills. I'm like, well, get to the point in your diet and lifestyle where you don't need them anymore.
1: Yeah. Good points. Good points. And then, you know, two, just empowering our digestion, right? So sometimes it's like, let's just improving apple cider vinegar, digestive, natural digestive enzymes, or taking digestive enzymes. So we're absorbing what we're getting, you know, we're doing such a good job of focusing on, we're absorbing more of that. Well, Dr. Nisha, I know I I obviously could speak to you for days and I am just glad you're doing everything you're doing and with such integrity and energy and passion. So I want to thank you for being part of our community here today. Tell our listeners again, how they get to you.
0: Sure. Come check me out at drnasha.com. You can also find me on all those social media handles at Dr. Naysha Inc. or Metabolic Approach to Cancer. And then that is my co-authored book with Jess Higgins Kelly on the metabolic approach to cancer. We also have a couple more books coming out in the next couple of years. So keep watching us for that. I think that's it. I'm still trying to get the handle. Social media stresses me out. So I try (laughs) really (laughs) <laughs> to minimize that. So I'm always uh, super grateful for the offer that you have for me to give a shout out to that so people can find me organically that way.
1: Yes, absolutely. And for our listeners, this has been a huge discussion. This is something that you're going to want to listen to again and again. So be sure to share this podcast with your friends, with your social media channels, talk, tag Dr. Nasha, tag, Me, Dr. Anna Kabeca, and and let's share this message. This is a powerful one. So I ask one request of you today: just share this message that this conversation, this awareness that we as a community have to shift the trajectory of the health in our communities right now we have to take the lead and i and i know so many amazing women and men that are listening that are leaders in their own lives in their own families in their own communities and you know with that Terrifying statistics of the increasing numbers of cancer. Like 50% of us are expected to have cancer. I mean, seriously, it's interesting because I was looking at this issue on other countries. There was a question about, I had on social media about maca being estrogenic. And I'm like, you know, well, well let's look at this. Estrogen, first of all, is not a, a negative, toxic estrogens are negatives. And what's the research show about MACA? You know, supportive, adaptogenic, right? And I also went and just looked up cancer statistics. And lo and behold, United States right now, 33% of, of us below age 75 will have a diagnosis of cancer. In Peru, it's 15%. In Peru, where maca comes from is 15%. So it's not just that, right? It's not just that they're, you know, that maca is a staple for them, but it's all these other things like Nasha talked about, like I talk about in my book, you know, the sunrise, the sunset, grounding, and mostly, mostly having loving, affectionate relationships, right? Nurturing that most important relationship in your life, your marriage, nourishing the relationships with your kids, magnetizing your health, so that you magnetize healthy relationships around you and that in and of itself is a gift it's the biggest gift we can give ourselves and and enables us to actually treat ourselves better and and accomplish more health so i want to thank you all for listening to couch talk and join me next week thank you